Welcome to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhamford.org. My name is Peter Anderson. I'm a senior pastor here at, uh, at FBH, and I am so glad that you've joined us today. Hey, little kids, huh? Give a round of applause to little kids. We had about the same amount of those kids last service, and so last year we had all of them on the stage at once, and it took me like five minutes to get them all off the stage so I could start preaching. Um, and so we cut it in half this year. I was going to say cut them in half. That would be morbid. Uh, cut it in half this year. Um, and so, uh, but all of them will be at the, uh, the, the performance tonight at 5 o'clock, so please come out. They'll do those songs, but there's a play that goes with it. There's... A whole thing that's going on, um, but uh, but we're excited you're with us today to kick off the uh, the Christmas season. And if you're here this morning, I just want you to know, like Pastor Jeff says, oftentimes Pastor Brian says uh, quite a bit that it is not an accident that you're here with us this morning. Um, whether you're here as an aunt or an uncle, or uh, to to see your niece or nephew or or a grandparent, or you're just here visiting for the first time, or maybe you have come to this church every single Sunday for the last. 30 years. It is not an accident that you're here um, th- this morning. And as we get started, I'm just, I'm just curious. Uh, is, is anyone in here a perfectionist? Just show hands. Perfectionists in the room? Okay, so half of you are lying. I know that. And it's the perfectionists who are lying because if you raise your hand, you're admitting that you're not perfect, right? So you need to work on your pride a little bit out there too, uh, perfectionist. I am a perfectionist by nature. I hate it when things go wrong. It is one of my least favorite things in the world. When things, when you're like, you're looking at a problem, you're like, this should take like 10 minutes to fix, right? Or trying to complete a task, this should take like 10 minutes to fix, right? Guys, I think we always do this on projects around the house. Like, oh, 10 minutes, three hours later and two two, two trips to Home Depot, you're done, right? Um, but I'm a perfectionist by nature. And so last night, we're, uh, we were out here late last night uh, finalizing the light show for tonight. And we thought to ourselves, like, we got here at 3.30, and, we, and actually uh, Kyle Relf, who's helping us with this, I mean, you know, Kyle, was like, hour and a half, hour and a half, then we'll be out of here. It's like, why would you say that, man? Why would you, you have just solidified that we are going to be here forever? And so just about everything that could have gone wrong last night went wrong last night as we're trying to plug in lights and do all the different things. And we had FM transmitters break and we had uh, wrong computers set up and we had like all of the different things that could. So we got out of here at like 930 last night. So what was like, oh, it should be an hour and a half, turned in an over a six-hour ordeal of us trying to figure things out. It works now, okay? So don't worry. We got it working. I'm a perfectionist. I wasn't going to let it not work, okay? Um, but it was just one of those things that I was just like, how come, like, like how come this went wrong? This should have been like plug stuff in, press start, let's go home, right? And I'm sure you guys have experienced uh, things like this before. Like you want things to go or you think things are going to go really, really smoothly. There shouldn't be any issues. And you get slapped in the face with issue after issue after issue over. Like maybe it's you go to work and you think to yourself, today's going to be an easy day at work, right? I've thought this before. Oh, this is going to be an easy day. It's going to be a good day. It'll be a study day. It'll be quiet. No one's going to bother me right? I'll be able to get some real deep work done. And it ends up being a day where like 15 people drop in to say hi. And I'm like, nope, that's not a thing. Thank you for the coffee. Thank you for the coffee, right? But uh, so it just kind of turns into, and so maybe that's true of you um, at work, or maybe uh, you, you are planning like a great dinner. You think, you know what? I got this dinner. 
And by the time I get home, I'll throw it together. I got everything I need. It'll be fine. And you get to that last ingredient, and the last ingredient isn't there, right? You're like, I'm not taking a trip to the store. Yeah, we're going to have spaghetti without sauce, right? I I don't even care. (laughs) It's actually guilty of something like this. When I was younger, uh, I was just married. We were married for like three months. Um, And my wife is, if you don't know my wife, she loves cookies, right? Cookies and ice cream are like her two favorite things, not necessarily together, but cookies and ice cream. Um, And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to make some chocolate chip cookies. Now I say this, and I need you to be aware. I do not consider myself a baker. I do not consider myself a cook. I am lost in the kitchen for the most part, okay? There's a reason that our Wednesday night dinner team does not ask for my opinion on anything, okay? Because I will just steer them in the wrong direction. And so I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to make my new bride some chocolate chip cookies. And so I go to the store, I get everything that I need, um, and I come home and I start throwing ingredients in. I'm like, oh, I need to get some butter. So I go to the fridge because I was like, clearly we have butter. I open the fridge. There's no butter in the fridge, right? But what was in the fridge was not butter. Specifically, I can't believe it's not butter, Right? And so I was like, oh, this is going to be perfect. Right? I know it says it's not butter, but come on. It's actually butter. Right? Like, that shouldn't be an issue. And so I just subbed it out one for one. And, of course, Sarah's not home at this point. She can't steer me in the right direction. I'm on my own. Why I wouldn't look at Google, I don't know. Right? And so I throw it all together, and I'm like, man, this dough doesn't look right. It'll be fine. There's enough sugar in it. It'll be fine, right? Throw it in the, in the oven, pull it out. Worst cookies ever had. Sarah comes home and she's like, wow, it smells like cookies. I was like, yeah, they're all in the trash. It's not, we're not, <laughs> we're not, we're not gonna, gonna go there. Um, and so um, while this is true for us, a lot of times like assuming things are gonna go one way and then they go completely different direction, this is never true of God. Actually, and this is really evident as we talk through the story of Christmas and we talk through the story of Jesus. God's eternal plan for world redemption was a perfectly synchronized program of events that centered on the Savior's birth in Bethlehem. And so this morning, we're going to examine some of those details, some of the historicity of Jesus. So for the first like 10 minutes, we're going to be in the classroom a little bit. Okay, we got some learning to do because I think oftentimes what happens is we think to ourselves, oh, it's Christmas time. Excuse me. Also, I'm sick, by the way. So I woke up sick this morning and that's a great way to top off one of our busiest days of the year. Um, But that being said, I think what happens during Christmas time, we get caught up in the season, right? We get caught up in like the trees and I have to do this and I have to do that. And I have to do all of these different things. And my schedule's absolutely nuts, which if you want your schedule to be nuts, that's fine. That's on you, okay? But that being said, we get just kind of caught up in this and we think that Christmas is just no more than like a thing that we do on a regular basis. It is so much more than that. God's plan, it worked out perfectly and synchronized perfectly this program of events. And so when you examine the details, you can be overwhelmed with the fact that this is not actually an afterthought of God. This isn't a mistake that God made. It's actually a carefully laid out organizational plan of complexity. And so the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4, specifically 4 and 5, I know Brian read it earlier, but it says, when the fullness of the time came, That means there was a plan in place. That means there was something already in the works. And so when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
So when we think about the idea of the incarnation, God becoming flesh, when we think about that idea, it took place at just the right moment, precisely as God had arranged it. It was carefully planned. It was communicated through his spokespeople as they, like throughout the Old Testament, different prophets who would be obedient to his word. It was actually my, my son's namesake, the Hebrew prophet Micah. It says in, in Micah 5, chapter 2, he says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, to little, to, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from, from you one will go forth for me, to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This was written, the fact that, that the Savior of the world was going to be born in Bethlehem, this was written 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. Already widely accepted by Jews as Scripture. 700 years prior. That's almost three times America's age. That's how long before that happened. And so 700 years later, there's a teenage couple, descendants of King David. And King David uh, is, are these people, they're living in Nazareth, specifically in, in Galilee. It's a few days' journey away from Bethlehem, about 63 miles, depending on the route that you take. But 63 miles, a few days' journey from Bethlehem. And, and she is due, Mary is due any day now to give birth. And going to Bethlehem is really, really far from her mind. So we have an issue. We have a, a woman who before the angel who, who came and talked to her was like, hey, you're going to give birth to a son. He's going to be the savior of the world. So we have this woman, but the prophecy from 700 years ago says, yeah, but the savior of the world is going to be born in Bethlehem. So how is it that we have this lady living in Nazareth is going to get to Bethlehem when she's multiple months pregnant and it's a multiple day journey? It doesn't seem to make sense. How is it that God is going to move in this, in this instance? How can God get her to Bethlehem on time? And the reality is, is God's timing is always perfect. But these things kind of pretty close this time. Yeah, I got to get this pregnant lady to Bethlehem in order for her to have the Savior of, of the world. But when you examine the details, there's this unique set of historical circumstances that are significant. A unique set of historical circumstances that, that, that are meaningful to the fulfillment of those prophecies related specifically to the birth of Christ. Because the observant person, it, it would be amazing how the sovereign hand of God brings it all together in perfect timing. He is the God of history and he is in control of every single detail. And so I cease to be amazed at how God takes his time. And I think all of us have been there before. Right When we're praying for something and you're just like, God, where are you? I have been praying for this over and over and over and over again. And I hear nothing. I hear absolute silence from you. And right before you're about to give up praying, all of a sudden God's timing works out perfectly. I know it's happened numerous times to, to me in our life, in my life. And sometimes, to be fair, we think he's dragging his feet. But God knows the absolute perfection, every detail of the events along the way. The people he chooses to use to accomplish his eternal purpose in this story. And it's tragic that we get so busy with our plans, our schedules, our arrangements, our instant gratification, that we fail to see his perfect timing. So with all of that being said, Luke 2, 1 through 7 is what we're going to hash through this morning. This is what it says. We're going to read it first. And then we'll come back and chunk it up and talk about what it means, okay? And that's when we're going to get into the classroom. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. 
This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up to a town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the son of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and his expecting child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. All right, let's chunk this up a little bit. First of all, like I said, God's timing is always perfect, right? A sovereign God made ready a time and a people to be able to fulfill his purpose for the redemption of lost mankind. Okay, that's what we have to understand with this. Jesus was born at a specific time and a specific place in history. It occurred in the days of Caesar Augustus. Is what it says. When Jesus Christ, he was born. Uh, he was born. Palestine was under. It was when Palestine was under the reign of a Roman ruler, specifically, like I said, Caesar Augustus. Long. There was a long hundred-year civil war that had been taking place in Rome just before this. And so, as Caesar Augustus takes over, that civil war comes to an end. And Luke, the author of this passage that we just talked about, is careful to give us very, very specific historic details about what is going on at this point. This is not always true when it comes to Scripture. Oftentimes when you see, specifically in Paul's, letter to, Paul's epistles later on to the early church, he doesn't provide specific examples about who the pastor is, where specifically the church is, how the church came together, the church's bylaws, all of these different things. But Luke, the author of Luke and the author of Acts, always is very, very specific in the details that he gives regarding what it is that he is writing about. And I believe it is because he wants us to make sure that even if we weren't there, even if we don't understand what it is that happened, we can go back and verify exactly what it is that went down. So Augustus, he's the first Roman emperor to wear that imperial purple, to wear the crown as a sole ruler of this massive empire. I mean, the entire known world is under the rule and reign of this guy. And so he's the emperor of Rome. He ruled from 27 B.C. to about 14 A.D. His, his birth name is Gaius Octavius. And some of you may know that name, Octavian. That's the same guy that we're talking about here. If you're talking about like the famous Julius Caesar, that's going to be his great uncle. And it's going to be specifically on his mother's side. So actually, Julius Caesar, original Julius Caesar, he adopts Octavian into his family. He raises Octavian as his son, as a matter of fact. And so then Augustus hears that Julius Caesar, when he had been assassinated 44 BC, he returned to Rome to claim his inheritance. And so the crazy thing is, is, is this guy, Caesar Augustus, he wasn't like this big, like Julius Caesar, massive figure. This guy's an administrative guru. And you give this guy, if he had spreadsheets back in the day, he'd be that guy that you wanted to ignore, right? You're like, I get it. You have a cool spreadsheet. Leave me alone. Okay? Brian, Brian Guy, we always say, is an administrative guru. He's got nothing on Caesar Augustus. Okay? Because he puts together this era of political peace for a long period of time. And the way he does it is by organizing his citizens and understanding who his citizens are. Actually making full, full records. And so because of that, he decides to issue a census. That's what it says again in verses 1 and 2. It says, In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And then beyond that, it talks about a guy uh, by the name of Quirinius, who's the governor of Syria. 
And so the census is this registration. It's the enrollment of all the people. Census then is the same as the census now. Really, the reason the government does it is to make sure that they're taking enough of your money. Okay? That's what's happening here as well. How many people live in your house? All right, cool. We can get that number. This is how much we are going to tax you now. Okay? And so Caesar Augustus, he does the same thing. And specifically, he does it under, or he, he, he tasks this guy Quirinius to be able to do it. And so the world was at peace with the Romans at this point. Complete and total peace with the Romans, but it's Roman peace. Roman peace means peace with a whip. Caesar Augustus essentially had his boot on the neck of the rest of the known world at this point. And that's how it was they were going to establish peace. But, but how is it then that we're going to get a pregnant Mary all the way to Bethlehem? I don't know, maybe he'll use the ruler of the known world to issue a decree and say, hey, Mary, Joseph, go home. Where's home? Bethlehem. God lays it out perfectly. A sovereign God had prepared a people, a nation, a specific time in history to do the most unimaginable thing, which we'll pick up here in verse 3 through 5. It says, and everyone went to their own town to register. Mary and Joseph. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. That's another prophecy from the Old Testament. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So we go back to the historicity of everything. How can we verify these things? Real time, real place, real people. Bethlehem is a city, a city that is still standing, still in existence today. Going back to the ancestral city, there seems to be kind of a a sensitive political decision that happened at some point between this area and Rome. And so the Roman authorities allowed the Jews to follow their own social customs as long as they were continuing to pay the government what it is the government needed. And so the city where the, family, where the family registry for King David's descendants was kept was in Bethlehem. And that's where we find two humble, unknown peasants in Palestine who are marching under the order of Caesar Augustus to fulfill God's will. In the greatest time in history, the Lord God turned to a peasant Jewish home in Nazareth. Now we talk about Nazareth and we're like, oh yeah, Nazareth, that's where, you know, Nazareth, that's great. You know what people said about Nazareth? 30 years later, one of Jesus' own disciples, a guy by the name Nathaniel, he laughed and he said, could any good thing come out of Nazareth? It would be the equivalent of like someone coming. Nope, not going to say it. There's a couple, I almost said it last service and I looked around and I was like, no. And I almost said Selma. I was like, no, I'm not going to say Selma. Someone's going to get upset about that. So where's no one from? <laughs> not going to say it. So the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That's his ancestral home. So Jesus could be born in Bethlehem as David had been. Remember, this is happening. This is the fulfillment of prophecy that had been made 700 years before by Micah. And so the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And so the events that are going to take place under the government of God. Beyond that, Mary made this journey along with Joseph to Bethlehem. And I can't imagine she's very happy. Ladies, for those of you who have been eight, nine months pregnant, I don't know if riding on a donkey for 63 miles is your idea of a good time. But that's what, that's what goes down. And Luke is actually careful to tell us that she was engaged to him and she was with child. 
There's something we need to know about engagement in the first century. Engagement in the first century, specifically Jewish society, was taken really, really seriously. More seriously than we would take it today, as a matter of fact. From the moment of engagement, the woman was treated as if she was actually married to the man. And the relationship could only be dissolved by divorce from that point forward. So it wasn't a matter of taking off your ring and throwing it at that jerk who proposed to you. It was a matter of, no, you have to actually seek out a divorce from the time that you said yes to the, uh, to the proposal. Unfaithfulness, even during being engaged, was actually considered a form of adultery. The couple didn't consummate their marriage until the wedding celebration and the man took her home, though. Okay, so really, engagement was just like marriage without the perks. I'll let you figure that out. But as you're sitting here this morning, you need to understand that Christ himself is a miracle. Christ himself is a miracle. He is miraculous. Therefore, any miracles he performed are minor when set forth beyond the wonder of who he actually is. His very incarnation is a miracle. The angel told Mary nine months earlier, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary, of course, troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, first words angels always say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. Mary said, wait a minute. How, how can this be? Since I am a virgin, literally, verse 34, it says, a man I know not. She's this young woman. Preserved the purity of her body. How can this be possible? It made no sense to her then, and it barely makes sense to us now. The miraculous element in the manner of the conception, or the miraculous element in this whole story is the conception of Christ in Mary. Right? Clearly, the, the literal message is that Jesus was to be born of Mary without a human father. When you look at this theologically, and I'm not going to go into it this morning, when you look at this theologically, this has massive implications regarding what our sin nature is. I'll go into it briefly. In Genesis chapter 3, sorry. (laughs) In Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of man. And from that point forward, we have what's called inherited sin. And so that inherited sin comes from the seed of Adam, meaning from the moment that we are born, from the moment that we are conceived, we are sinners in need of a Savior. So what happened is, is that it's called seminal headship. When that seminal headship was removed, there was no longer inherited sin to Christ. Meaning his dad needed to not actually be his dad. His dad needed to be God in order to remove the sin nature that he was to inherit. There are massive theological implications for this. I don't have time to go into them. But that being said, let's keep going. Luke 2, 6 and 7. It says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. So after Jesus is born, he's wrapped in cloths, a specific type type of cloth. It's a square cloth and it had a a, a rag off the side. and, And the Jewish tradition was to wrap the babies up in a very specific way. And that's the reason that Luke talks about it was swaddling clothes because they would have known what it looked like. It would be like you or I writing and he was wrapped in a onesie, right? Like we would understand what that means in our cultural context at the time. So he's born, he's placed in a manger, which is nothing more than a feeding trough or a box for feeding animals. 
The baby's born in a stable, not in the palace, placed in a feeding trough, not a pretty bassinet in the palace of the king. And so when we read this, you can actually think to yourself, this all kind of seems a little bit like an afterthought. Like, God, didn't you know the Savior of the world is coming? And those are the best arrangements you could find for him? Like, that's it? This is actually the same reason that the Jews had such a hard time accepting who Jesus was. Because the Jews had a very specific idea about what a Savior should be. It's the same way that Jesus is written about in the book of Revelations, riding on a horse with a flaming sword and eyes that are like bright red, and he's just like ready to engulf everybody. The Jews were tired of the Roman government, and so because of that, they wanted a Savior who was going to come, flip the Roman government on its head, and the, and the Jewish people were going to be able to claim and retake power on this earth. And, and God, you gave us a baby crying in a manger in a shack as what seemingly looks like an afterthought. The glory of this event is not what the set looks like. The glory of this event is is who is at center stage. The Messiah, the anointed one of God, who has been brought down to Israel to deliver his people. I mean, just think about a few minutes ago when you guys were all watching the kids. You guys didn't care what the stage looked like, right? First service, both wreaths were out, and no one said anything. Why? Because your focus was there and looking at the ridiculous things that little kids do when they're on stage. My favorite, I have two favorite age groups when kids sing. It's the preschoolers who have no clue what's happening. They're just staring out there. The kids who've been working on this for eight weeks are just as good as the kids who showed up 30 seconds before service. <laughs> and then the fifth graders who are either going to carry the show or stand there like, I want nothing to do with this. <laughs> but the reality is nothing up here matters. The lights don't matter. What is on the screen doesn't matter. All you cared about was looking at your kids and you were waiting for your kids to come up there. And as they came up there, you were beaming and there were so many phones recording and taking pictures, right? And it was absolutely ridiculous. So nothing else mattered except who was at center stage at the time. This is the same thing as the incarnation of Christ that we have going on. Nothing else mattered. The inn didn't matter. Where he was kept didn't matter. What he was sleeping on didn't matter. All that mattered was the incarnation happened and God was made flesh, and came into the world to rescue us from our sin, right? The inn was little more than shacks, no room even for one in the place, like the poorest, the place for, for animals. When they would come in, travelers would, would provide their own food. What the innkeeper provided was, was hay for the animals and fire to prepare the food on. So Mary and Joseph, hopefully they brought food with them. But if they got there, assuming that they were going to go to like some bed and breakfast, which legitimately was usually the accommodations that there were, They were sadly mistaken. Maybe they didn't have food. I can't say that definitively. But the town was crowded, everything. There's no room for Joseph and Mary. They camped in a courtyard. The innkeeper wasn't cruel. It's not like he was being inhospitable. He literally just didn't have any room left. The poor couple, probably no relatives in the city. If they did have relatives in the city, they don't talk about it. And as far as we can determine, they were all alone and completely dependent upon God to provide all of their needs. 
And at the end of the day, Mary and Joseph can say, I saw God provide all that we needed because nothing else mattered. So that's the birth narrative of Jesus. That's at least the first few verses of the birth narrative of Jesus. And it's not unfamiliar. We, we talk about this every single year. I love when people ask me, like, what are you preaching about at Christmas? Are you serious? Like, you know what I'm preaching about at, at Christmas. It's like asking me what I'm going to preach about on Easter. Come on. Same thing I'm going to preach about if the Giants are in the World Series, right? The Giants. No, just kidding. But that's the birth narrative of Jesus. It's not an unfamiliar story. And we don't, what we don't realize is that the birth of Christ wasn't just something for lights and celebration. An elf on the shelf. And Santa and all of the things. It's not even just necessarily a time for family. And for you to pack your schedule and assume that you have to go to every single Christmas party that's being offered. Or to drink watered down hot chocolate that you refuse to drink any other time of the year. But it's cozy. Let's turn on the fireplace and watch Allmark. And we assume, like, we just kind of, like, stop there. This, like, like, this is not that. The incarnation, the incarnation was D-Day. The incarnation was a strategic attack to gain back what was lost in Genesis chapter 3. Complete communion and community with God. The question then becomes, not do I have room, not does Jesus have room in the end this holiday season. The question is, is there room in my heart for the acknowledgement of Jesus as my Lord and Savior this holiday season? And to be clear, there are hearts that will never, ever welcome Jesus. Not because of hatred towards him, but simply because, man, you know what, I'm pretty busy already. I got a lot of other things that I got to do. I'm, I'm, my mind is already pretty overcrowded with thoughts and Thoughts of being rich and, and I want to be honored and prestige and pleasure and business affairs and comfort. No room, no time to reflect on his will. No desire to go out of our way to do what it is that is going to please him. The reality is, is, is people tend to want like a folk religion that's, that's really, really convenient and really, really unimposing. But not too serious and please no commitment. Make it convenient and easy in my fast-paced world, but please, no more obligations. I've got a pretty hectic schedule, maybe some other day, but you know what, just, just not, not today. If you, if you came to church today or you thought specifically that Christianity was a religion that wasn't going to affect you at all or that was an easy religion, you are absolutely wrong. You are absolutely wrong. Christianity is difficult. Not because you have to be perfect. And that's what oftentimes people assume. Oh, religion is hard because you have to do so good. Christianity is difficult because when you actually take Christianity seriously, it forces you to uproot the majority of the things in your life that you thought to be true. It's a lens that you have to look through for everything. You have to take off the political party lens. You have to take off the lens of gain. You have to take off the lens of comfort and self-care. And view it all through the lens of the incarnation and the cross. That's why Christianity is difficult. So we need to ask ourselves, what is our attitude towards Jesus? 
Are there ways that I crowd out Jesus in my life? Does my lifestyle say that there's no room? Come back another day. I really would like to have some other day when it's more convenient. Do I say no room by my attitudes in life when, when maybe you don't interfere with my goals and the plans that I have? Maybe there's just simply no room for the ethical demands of full submission to God. I've got my own way of looking at life. I have my own philosophy on life. Sorry. Here's the truth of all of it. Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, 16 to 18. He essentially says that Christ wants to, wants to settle down and make himself permanently at home in our hearts. He doesn't want us to wait for some more convenient time, but right now, today, right where you're sitting. And too often we miss it. Christ became flesh in order for us to be able to have eternal life forever. And this morning I would challenge you that if you have not acknowledged God, if you have not acknowledged Jesus as Lord of your life, that this morning would be a good time to do so. In just a second we're going to receive communion. I'm going to invite the band to come back out. They're hiding backstage. And it's what we do on the first Sunday of every month. And so if you didn't receive communion elements on your way in, if you just want to raise your hand, we'll have some members of the diaconate take care of you. Not an embarrassment, but make sure that you get your communion elements. And this is what we do, like I said, on the first Sunday of every month. And, and at FBH, we believe in what's called specifically an, an open table. And that means that you don't have to be a member of our church in order to receive communion with us, but we do ask that you have made a profession of faith, meaning that you have asked Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life. If you haven't done that, I would encourage you to reflect on what this holiday actually celebrates. Do we get to watch cute kids and light up the night and get matching pajamas and do all the ridiculous things that we do? Yep, absolutely we do. I would encourage you to do it, actually. But it shouldn't be because we always do it. It shouldn't be because the weather's cold and we want to snuggle up. It should be because that we recognize that even when our life feels completely out of control or that God is absent or that God is missing, that God was willing to send his only son to die for our sins so we could have eternal life with him. started with the incarnation and so oftentimes I think there's times in our life like I said that we think to ourselves like God where are you why aren't you here how come I can't see you and we look to scripture and we look at the gospels and we look at the birth of Christ and that he walked this earth for 33 years and he bled and he died on a cross and then he came back and he was seen by over 500 witnesses before he ascended back to the right hand of God. But then when he went, it's not like God abandoned us. He sent us who he said someone would, something that would be even better for us. He sent his spirit to live inside of all of those people who would say that, yes, God, you're my Lord and you are the savior of my life. I'm gonna listen to the promptings of your spirit. I'm gonna read, I'm gonna do my best to follow your word. And man, every single day when I live my life, I'm gonna do my best to look like your son. And God, I know I'm gonna fail, I know I'm gonna mess up, but God, thank you for sending your son so I don't have to die the same death that I deserve. 
So if you're a believer this morning, though, my question to you this morning is this, is how is your life different because of the incarnation? If you showed up to a party, if you showed up and there was a whole bunch of people that you didn't know, would they know that anything was different about you? Would, you, would they know that you love Jesus? Or would you just be another face in the crowd? This is what's gonna happen in just a second. We're gonna pray, we're gonna sing a little bit. And as we sing, you can stand, you can kneel, you can raise your hands, you can sit, you can do whatever. This time specifically is for you to be able to commune with God. Meaning you need to sit there and you need to just, just admit the things that are going wrong in your life Admit the, the sins in your life, not the things that are going wrong. Admit the, the sin that's in your life. Get right with him. Thank him for sending his son. Thank him for the incarnation. Thank him for the cross. And as, as we receive the communion, after we sing a little bit, and we'll do that all together, as we receive that communion, remember that the cross isn't possible outside of D-Day, outside of his incarnation on that Christmas so many years ago. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I'm, I'm thankful for you. And I'm thankful for your son. And God, even as I stand here, I recognize that I'm, like, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of what your son did on a cross for me. that your word tells me that the wages of sin is death and I never now have to experience a spiritual death because of the fact that I acknowledge you as Lord and Savior of my life and because of the fact that you did it for me. So God, I pray my life would look like that. I pray that you would continue to mold me and shape me to make me more holy, to make me look more and more like your son so I can allow more and more people to know about your son. That's the cry of my heart. That should be the cry of a believer's heart. But maybe with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, maybe you, you have not yet made that profession of faith. And if that's you this morning, man, I would love for nothing more for you to receive communion with us for the first time. But we would ask you to make that profession of faith first and, you can, first and you can simply pray in the quietness of your heart, say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. But B, I believe you sent your son to die on a cross for me. Die in my place. And see, I would choose to follow you forever. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.